Well, we're in Philippians, still on the first chapter. Remember, just after Ephesians, you know when you're a baby Christian because you've, you've just found the verse at the end of the Bible study. Right. Okay, Philippians chapter 1, and uh, we'll just, just pick up. Last time, all right, we did the first nine verses, didn't we? And we did all the background, uh, you know, to how Paul came to write the letter. And we got up to verse 9, but what I want to do is to carry on where we left off and just go over again, very quickly, what we were saying um, in regards to verse 9. And you'll remember that Paul was praying for me. He said, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And that we saw there that Paul's prayer for, uh, for them was that they'd grow in love and knowledge and discernment as well. And you remember we saw that the point that Paul's trying to make is that it's, it's no use just being full of love. Now the Bible says that you can have everything, but if there's no love in it, it's a waste of time. But it's also true that just having love, just wanting to help, etc., etc., also isn't enough. Love wants to help, but knowledge knows how to help. And so Paul says, I want you to grow in love, no problem, but he doesn't leave it there. Love is wonderful, everything, but it's not on its own enough. Sometimes people can want to help with all the best will in the world. But if you haven't grown in knowledge and experience of the Lord, it's not going to help anyone. It's just passive loving them. It can't lead to action because you don't know what action to take. And so Paul says knowledge. Knowledge as well. Grow in knowledge. In knowledge of the scriptures, knowledge of God's dealings. We're not talking about packing your heads with doctrine. It's not what we're talking about, but knowledge of God, knowledge of the scriptures, and finally knowledge of you, yourself. Because the very best way to know how to help other people is based on your own experience of how God has helped you. And we saw as well that Paul talks about discernment. And this was the key thing. He says love and knowledge and discernment as well. And we saw this discernment, the word aesthesis, it's a completely different thing to when Paul talks about discerning spirits, all right? So forget that word because it's a different thing. And what this means is a perception, an understanding. It's a kind of a inner ability to apply the knowledge that you had. And we went on to see that knowledge alone isn't enough either. I mean, for instance, it is no use having your head packed full of the right things to say to people. That can come over very hard, very cold. Love on its own is nice, but it doesn't always know how to help. Knowledge without love is all, you know, awful, but also knowledge without a discernment without knowing how the Holy Spirit would have you apply that knowledge and really reach into whatever needs it is you're trying to meet. And you remember we saw in John's Gospel last time, it spoke about Jesus, that he was full of grace and truth, love and knowledge. And that it said as well that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. Now we saw that the law, I mean people think, well the law, that's of course that's truth. Of course that's gracious. No, it wasn't. Moses, we saw, he could lead people out of Egypt, but he left them to die in the wilderness. That's all the law can do. The law simply tells you, right and wrong simply tells you you're wrong. But grace and truth doesn't just show people what's wrong. Grace and truth brings the power and the life and the love of Jesus into people's lives 
so that what is wrong can be put right. Not in the harsh way that the law does, not in the harsh way of just, well, there's something wrong here, so get it right, but the grace and the truth of Jesus, that even when we correct each other, and it's right that we do that, there are two ways of doing it. Knowledge can correct like a Pharisee. When the Pharisees went around saying that these, you know, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, they were actually right. They were correct in what they said. That knowledge was based on the Bible. But the point was there was no grace and truth in it. Even when we correct each other, it's got to be in such a way that we're not just saying, hey, there's something here that needs to change. We're actually bringing the power and the love of Jesus to that person in order that they can tie into his power in order to change. It's not just enough to say to each other, there's something here you've got to change. We need to bring to each other the love and the power of Jesus so that he is the one who's able to change us. And so Paul says to them, look, I want you to grow in love, in knowledge and discernment as well. I want you to know how to move in the Holy Spirit, applying the knowledge that you have from the scriptures and from God's dealings in your own hearts. I want you to learn how to move in the Holy Spirit and really apply that to people in a discerning, a loving way, a way that helps rather than just corrects, rather than just lays down the law. And it seems to me that there are always two ways to say things even that are right. It can be said out of sheer knowledge, the law, this is wrong, all right? And many things that people say that can destroy are actually quite correct. But grace and truth says things in such a way that whereas it may bring a destruction, because there are things in our lives that God needs to tear down. But the point is, any tearing down only occurs in order to clear away the rubble so that the building can start. And that's why you can have two different people saying exactly the same thing. But one person is like Moses, it's law, and it kills people. But another person is like Joshua, who is the type of Jesus, who says exactly the same thing, but the result of what they're saying is that people are led into the promised land. Can you see? It's no use just saying what's wrong. There's got to be that knowing how, through a heart of love in the Holy Spirit, how to lead people, not just out of what's wrong, but into what's right. Not just to tear down, but to build up as well. And that's why Paul says that to them, all right? Grow in love and knowledge and discernment as well, all right? Now then, let's, let's just go down into verse 10. And he says, look, he says, so that you may. He says, now this is what it's going to lead to. He says, if you do this, if you grow in love and knowledge and discernment, then this is what it's going to lead to so that you may approve what is excellent and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruits of righteousness which come through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. You see, what that will lead to is moral and spiritual excellence. Now, I'm not talking about excellence in the sense that if you really study hard for your exams, you'll get an excellent Pass mark. That's not what I'm talking about. When I talk about excellence, I'm meaning really, really going, going for broke. You know, that the, the impurity, 
everything in us that is against God, that, that it's being dealt with. Can you see that it's not a kind of a half-hearted, it's not a kind of, well, I mean, okay, I'll be a bit like a non-Christian. Can you see? We're talking about being totally unlike a non-Christian. People who are really being changed from the depths of our being. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now, we all know what it's like to hunger if you haven't eaten all day. We all know what it's like to thirst when you've been walking around Disney World in Florida in 88 degrees Fahrenheit. We, <coughs> well, anyway. Um, can you see when that, that real, oh, I've got to eat something, or oh, I'm dying for a drink. Now, in the same way, Jesus said, blessed are those people who are saying, I want the righteousness of Jesus. I'm not satisfied with my sinfulness as it stands now. I know I am sinful, but I want Jesus to be working in me. Can you see that going after excellence, purity, and blamelessness? Now, I don't know about you, but that idea turns me on. That very definitely and positively turns me on. I think that's wonderful. There was a time in the early years of being a Christian when I kind of had a fear thing about the whole holiness stuff. As soon as I heard people talk about holiness and righteousness, I'd, I'd get fearful. Do you know what I mean? It would turn me off. Now that's because I had a very wrong idea of what holiness and righteousness is all about. I was still then very much in this thing, you know, if God catches me up to no good, he'll let me have it. Now of course that isn't the case at all. But as you grow in the Lord, as you realise more and more what Jesus is like, you think, well my goodness, I want more and more to be like him. I want him to be seen more and more in me. And as you grow in the Lord and taste the bitterness of your own sinfulness, you long more and more for that sinfulness to be overridden by Jesus. So that this real deep down change in our lives is happening. And so that's what Paul says, approve what is excellent. That we're not turning blind eyes to the things that are wrong in us. You know, we're not letting ourselves get away with half as much as we do. Can you see that we're, we're going after, not just better than this, but we're going after the very best. We will go after it through failure, through sin. Yes, of course we will. And every time we fail, we just have to come to the Lord and confess it. But what Paul here is wanting, he's wanting them to be really yearning after the very life and character and holiness of Jesus. So he says, filled with the fruits of righteousness. That's a possibility. That is not pie in the sky. We're not talking about being perfect. You and I will never be sinless, not in this life. Of course we won't. But this thing as well that, that I mean, Many Christians, they seem to have this belief that, that you're, you're changed superficially, but not, not you know, the leopard can't change its spots. That is not true. In Christ, we are a new creation. Jesus can change us to the depths of our being. Start right deep down from the inside and work outwards. And that's what we're to be striving for, so that we can be filled with the fruits of righteousness. Now, what are the fruits of righteousness? It's the fruit of the Spirit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? It's Jesus himself. Jesus is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You and I can't be righteous, but Jesus can be righteous through us. And Paul is here having them. He's, he's turning their minds to, to, to the highest that he possibly can. And he says, that is what your sights ought to be set on. 
nothing less than Jesus living through you more and more and more in order that his righteousness and purity is showing through more and more. But in order for that to happen, that's going to mean discipline in our lives. That's going to mean, all right, that we're going to have to be willing to let God sort us out at times. I mean, in Hebrews, you know, the writer talks, he says, no discipline for the present time is nice. Let's actually turn to it. Just, just go to Hebrews 12, 11. I think God is very happy um, in some ways. If people, if people want to live the Christian life at what I call a very low level, I mean, it seems that, that he's very happy to let people do that. If people want to paddle around the outskirts of the kingdom, then, then the Lord let them. But my goodness, what they're missing out on, it's always best to, to really dive in. Hebrews 12, verse 11, he says, For the moment, all discipline... And that word discipline, it means child training. You know, the Lord is our Father. He'll bring us up like children. Uh, it seems painful rather than pleasant. I mean, who enjoyed being disciplined by your dad and mum when you were kids? I didn't, but it did me good. And I don't enjoy, you know, likewise from the Lord, but I know it's my own good. And he says it seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So Paul is saying to people, look, go after the fruits of righteousness in your life. And the writers of the Hebrews says the same thing, but he says it's got to be through God sorting you out though. That is not going to come easy. If we're going to hunger and thirst after righteousness, then it will be bye-bye to our cosy little lives. It will be bye-bye to any sense that the Christian life is going to be a doddle that it's going to be easy. No, it's not. If we invite the Lord to sort us out, believe me, he will. But what that is going to lead to in our lives is absolutely amazing. But the writer says in Hebrews, to those who allow themselves to be trained by it. You see, when God does move in our lives, and remember, half of God's work in our lives, he trains us by making everything go wrong. I mean, if everything went our way, would we ever grow up? I mean, the fundamental thing about us being sinners is that we're spoiled rotten. Sinners, you and I, have this strange idea that we ought to get whatever we want whenever we want it, that finally we ought to be able to do exactly what we like. Life is ours to live. You know, if I want to do it, I'll do it. What's it got to do with you? What's it got to do with God? Our sinful natures are spoiled absolutely rotten. Now, the point is, if you've got, say, a spoiled child, if you give that child everything it wants, are you going to set that child free from being spoiled? You're not. You're going to spoil it even more. So, I mean, normally, Christians use the word blessing to describe something nice happening. Now, that's not what the Bible says. All right. <laughs> now, but we want lives of blessing. But if we get lives of blessing that only nice things happen, is that going to stop us from being spoiled? No, of course it's not. That's not going to train our sinful natures. That's going to feed it. You know, every prayer you pray gets answered last week. What good is that? I mean, I've said before, there's only one, you know, if you're impatient, there's only one way to learn patience. Be kept waiting. No, you're saying, Lord, I want patience, and I want it now. <laughs> see? And, and so, can you see, it's by God keeping us waiting, it's by tough things happening that God deals in our lives. But, 
If we're going to be trained by that, then it's no use if all the time we're going to kick against it and grumble. Uh, there's a psalm, uh, and it's really good. It says, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding. That has to be led by bit and bridle. Now then, if, you're, if as a Christian, you're dead set that you want to paddle, I think God will let you. You know, if you want to be a convert, not a disciple, all right, you're saved. You're going to go to heaven. If you're born again, you're going to heaven. Now, if you want to leave it there and not go on to being holy, you're quite free to. And the indication in the Bible is that God will let you, if that's what you want. You're missing out, believe me. However, if you're one of these people who says, I do want God to have his way in my life, I do want God to deal with me, all right, then there are two ways of God taking you down that holiness road. You can follow him, or you can be dragged, kicking and screaming, like a master pulling its donkey who's stuck its heels in. You know, people trying to pull donkeys along. Mm -hmm. Now, it's up to us. If you like, sometimes when people are arrested by the long arm of the law, they get two choices. You can come quietly, or you can come the other way. Now, it's exactly what the law says to us. He says you can come quietly down this road to maturity, or you can come the other way. You can kick, you can scream, you can rebel all you like. I will get you there. But all that kicking and screaming and rebellion, you see, here's the point. It's not hurting God. It's not hurting God. God don't take things personally. It's hurting us. If I kick and scream against what God's doing in my life, it's not hurting him, it's hurting me. And the choice is ours. When God moves in our lives in that way, are we going to be trained by it? Or are we going to kick and scream against it? If you do, then that old bit and bridle is going to go in, and you'll just get dragged there kicking and screaming. And the Christian life, at the best of times, is going to be hard. But if you want it to be utter misery for the rest of your life, then go kicking and screaming. It's up to us. I prefer the easier way. All of us have to go through our kicking and screaming. But eventually, believe me, you learn the lesson that if you really want to take God head on, he'll win every time. You know, and it's only when you bite the dust for the millionth time that you realise it really does pay to just do what Father says. You know, that is being trained thereby. And Paul says, fill to the fruits of righteousness, and he says, to the glory and praise of God. To the glory and praise of God. I mean, sort of like, I mean, our hearts are so perverse. I mean, we can actually have the ability in our hearts to be hungering and thirsting after righteousness for entirely the wrong reason. So that people will realise what mature and holy Christians we are. <laughs> Paul said it's to the glory and praise of God. Remember what Jesus said. He said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Because the point is righteousness and holiness and these good works, they're not what we're doing. They're what Jesus is doing in us. So it's no praise and glory to us. It's praise and glory to God. And that raises the question, what do we really want? Do we want people to be looking at us and saying, isn't the Lord good? Or do we want people to be looking at us and saying, oh, aren't they wonderful? Aren't they wonderful? I mean, aren't we fast to think we're wonderful? I am. We have to know that, that God will humble us. If we're going to exalt ourselves, God's going to humble us. He'll chop you off at the knees. Chop you off at the knees for our own sake. 
that we ought to be seeking the glory and praise of God. And if we want the Lord to be revealed to people, and it's so easy, isn't it, to be kind of praying, oh Lord, you know, so let, let's see loads and loads of people converted, a good thing to pray for. But if we really, if our prayer is, Lord, reveal yourself to people through us, then this is how. This is how. This is the real business. I mean, you know, sort of going out on street missions, all very good. But that's not really the business. If people want to see Jesus revealed, it's got to be through as they meet us. They're meeting him. That as they get to know us, they think now the life that this person is leading can't be them. It's got to be someone else. Do you see? Are we leading a possible life or impossible lives? Jesus has called us to lead impossible lives. And I'm not talking now about miracles. That's part of it, but that's not what I'm talking about. The world believes it's impossible to fight against resentment. The world says you can't love those who are against us. And of ourselves, we can't. But the Bible says you can. You can. When people come against you, when people are trying to just be absolutely rotten to you, it's quite viable to love them and pray for them and bless them. The Bible says it's quite possible. How? Jesus doing it in us and through us. But if we're just going to accept the standards of the world, if we're just going to say, well, you know, sort of like, oh, well, you know, how, how dare they? How dare they? You know, oh, how dare they? And then justify it. Now then, if we're saying, oh, how dare they? How dare they talk about me like that? But if we're thinking, oh, Lord, sorry for that reaction. Oh, Lord, and we, that's growth. That's growth. But if we're going around saying, well, if people talk to me like that, they know what they can expect, don't they? Mm -hmm. That's, that, that's not hungering and thirsting after righteousness. God's called us to live a life that we can't actually live, but Jesus can live it through you, okay? And that is what Paul says to them. Now, that is his introduction, all right? You know, verses 1 to 11. The Bible wasn't written in verses, by the way. That only came a few hundred years ago. But, you know, that really is the end of Paul's greeting to them. And now the letter proper starts, all right? Now then, Let's read what he actually says. First of all, let's just read verse 12 to 14. Because <coughs> remember, we saw last week, Paul's writing this letter from a jail, all right? He says, I want you to know, brethren, that what has happened to me, I, I've been banged up again, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has been known throughout the whole praetorium God I Roman guards, all right, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brethren have been made confident in the Lord because of my imprisonment <clears throat> and are much more bold to speak the word of God without fear. Now here, Paul is in jail. He's been thrown in jail. All right, as a result of him serving the Lord, preaching the gospel, he's been banged up again. All right, and he spent a lot of his time getting banged up. And what he does now is he's encouraging them about it. He's saying, look, the fact that I'm now in prison, there is nothing for you to be discouraged about. Now then, <laughs> if this had been me, <laughs> I'd be needing people to come and encourage me. Not Paul. Paul's quite encouraged. His only concern is he hopes that no one else is, is kind of discouraged by it. I mean, there's a difference, isn't it? 
I mean, when bad things happen to Paul, he wanted to encourage everyone else. When bad things happen to me, I want sympathy and understanding and stuff like that. But Paul's only concerned about them, you see. And he knew that because he was in jail, that there were some Christians who would be discouraged and made fearful, all right? Um, and the reason that that would happen is because the question raises itself, and it's this. If God is with Paul, why has it happened to him? Is he? Often we think something really rotten happens to us. We think, well, I mean, if God is, you know, if God is kind of with me, why is this really horrible thing happening? We've already seen it. It's God disciplining us, isn't it? If, if, if only nice things ever happen to us, we're not going to grow up in the Lord. I mean, you do need the occasional horrible thing, you see. And what Paul is saying to them, he says, look, the reason there's nothing to be discouraged about here is that the fact that I'm in prison has advanced the work of the gospel. Can you see, Paul's here not thinking about himself. Not at all. The fact he's in prison isn't concerning him for his, his own sake. He's only thinking about other people and the work of the Lord advancing the gospel. And um, the personal implications of it don't, don't concern him too much. All right. And he says that, it's the, the fact that I'm here has served to advance the work of the gospel. Now, this word advance in the Greek um, it's the word uh, that you'd use for the Roman woodcutters. Now, I mean, the Romans were very into road building, but one of the distinctive things about their roads is that they went straight, didn't they? Uh, I mean, other people, when they built roads, if they came to an obstacle, they kind of went round. Now, the Roman philosophy is when you come to an obstacle, when building a road, you go through or you go over, but you don't go round. All right? Now, obviously, when you're building roads all over Europe, all over the then known world, okay, every now and then, you're building your road and smack bang in the middle of you is really dense, thick forest. And that gets in the way. But the Romans, all right, what they did, rather than build round it, they said, right, we're going to go through it. And they had their woodcutters. And these guys, it was their job to clear the forest. Only wide enough to get the road through, I didn't mind the trees being there either side, but just enough to get the road through. And this is the Greek word that would be used. When a Roman woodcutter went through, cleared the path, that's the word. He advanced in the Greek. And what Paul is saying, the fact that I am now in prison, he says this is mowing down obstacles in the work of the gospel. He says it's brilliant. He says this is fantastic. It is a really good thing that I'm in jail. The obstacles to the gospel are being mowed down. To Paul, it was a positive thing. It wasn't a setback. He wasn't, oh, how dreadful this has really put back the work of the law, that I'm in jail. He knew that in everything, God works together for good. Romans 8, 28. And he said, this is, this is great that I'm here. Okay. And the effects that Paul says are twofold. Firstly, he says unbelievers have been reached. He says, so it's become known throughout the whole Praetorium Guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now here's the point. Loads of people knew that Paul had been thrown in jail. Most of all, the Praetorium Guard and everyone who lived at the palace because that's where Paul was in prison. And what Paul is saying is they all knew Everybody knew that he was innocent of any wrongdoing that ought to put him in prison. They knew that he was in prison because he was suffering as being a disciple of Jesus. 
Now, believe me, that's as effective as a hundred evangelistic sermons. That's as effective as a thousand evangelistic tapes being sent out to people who don't know the Lord. Everyone knew that Paul was in jail, not because he'd done anything wrong, not because he deserved it, but because he was following Jesus. And word was really spreading. And the word was this. This guy hasn't done anything wrong. He's in jail because he's following Jesus. Crikey. Everything he's going through, but he thinks this Jesus is worth it. And word started to spread. And people started to get interested. Now here's the thing. In a situation like this, it was just as well, wasn't it, that Paul wasn't guilty of any wrong. Is he? The reason this worked was precisely because everyone knew that Paul was living such a blameless life. If he'd have been some kind of scallywag, you know, or sort of like everyone knew, well, okay, the guy's a Christian, but I mean, you know, he's, he's not very hot on his taxes. He certainly knows how to, you know, sort of do creative accounting, as we call it. Can you see? If Paul had had a bit of a name that people who knew him knew that here and there he was up to a bit of no good, they said, oh, he deserves to be in jail. Can you see? If we're going to suffer for Jesus, for that to have an effect, then it must be that people can see clearly that we haven't actually done anything wrong. I mean, if there are people who hate us and they're spreading all kinds of rumours about us because we're, you know, we're following Jesus, it's no use other people looking on and saying, well, I mean, I know the bloke. You know, he's such an awful bloke, I want to spread rumours about him, can you see? But it's only when people say, no, I know this bloke, he has done no wrong. But it's quite possible to end up people not liking you. Not because it's persecution, but because we're not very likeable people, you see? You know, I mean, it's no use being someone who gets in an argument with everyone at the drop of a hat. And then when all the non-Christians are saying, honestly, bloke calls himself a Christian, uh -huh. You can't put that down to persecution. I remember one bloke, and uh, you know his neighbours were persecuting him. They were giving him a really bad time. So he was a Christian, you know. And I, 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 you know, I really encouraged this guy, and I said, "Well, don't worry. You know, the law's with you in this." Until I found out that this guy's such a foul temper, his neighbour was quite used to having him effing and blinding at him over the fence for nothing. And so I said to him, "Hang on a sec. This isn't persecution." I said, what on earth do you expect if you're going to behave like that? I said, right, go and say sorry to your neighbour. And he, he wouldn't have it, you know. But can you see the point? If we're going to get banged up, all right, or whatever equivalent it is, if we're going to suffer for Jesus, then let it at least be clear to people who know us that we're not there for any reason. So that there's nothing in our lives that's giving them good reason to think, oh, well, I'll bet he was up to no good. I'll bet he was up to no good, really. The point was, everyone knew that Paul was innocent of any wrong. And therefore, they knew that he was in prison, not because he deserved it, but because he was following Jesus. So Paul was pleased about that. He said, the fact I'm in jail, he says, there are lots of non-Christians here who are hearing the gospel, all right, and they're being drawn to Jesus. Now, the second thing that he was so pleased about, okay, was that other believers were being emboldened by it. All right, uh, let's just read it. He says, and most of the brethren have been made confident in the Lord because of my imprisonment and are much more bold to speak the word of God without fear. And you see, it was working like this. Other believers were looking on and they were saying, well, if Paul can put up, we're taking stick from the, you know, for the Lord. 
if Paul can go through, you know, really follow the Lord and go through tough times, if he can do it, well, if the worst comes to the worst, so can I. I mean, I've got the same Jesus that Paul's got. You see how it works? When you see a Christian victoriously going through real tough times, I mean, it's no use if you see, you know, a Christian going through a tough time and they're, oh, this is terrible, this is awful, oh, this is absolutely horrible. That's not going to encourage anyone to go the whole hog with the Lord, is it? But they were seeing Paul joyously going through real tough times following Jesus. And so they thought, well, the idea of a tough time doesn't turn me on, but I mean, who does? You know, of course it doesn't. No one wants a tough time. But they said, well, I mean, I don't like the idea of suffering for my faith, but for heaven's sake, look at Paul, he's loving every minute of it. Well, if Jesus can do it in him, Jesus can do it in me. Do you see? And then you're willing, your level of faith goes up. You're suddenly able to conceive, not so much, oh, I could never go through that, as you think, well, why not? The same God who's working in them is working in me. Of course I can go through it. And this was the other effect that it was having in regards to people. I mean, there is very little in life as blessed, all right, or as much as a blessing to other people as when we go through a tough time and suffering for the Lord, bearing it gladly and willingly. Very little produces the kind of blessing that going through suffering gladly and willingly produces. And Christians need living examples of it. And that's the beautiful thing about Paul, they had a living example. This wasn't just the stuff of Christian literature, you know, reading about people they didn't know. They knew this guy. He was living flesh and blood to them. I thought, well, if he can go through it, so can we. And we need to be examples to each other. I mean, yeah, of course there are going to be times when we go through tough times and it does hurt and we, we need to turn to each other. Yes, of course, we're human beings. But what I'm talking about is that every time things get tough, if we're, oh no, this is terrible, why me? Oh Lord, why me? And we're getting angry with God and we're kicking against it. That doesn't produce blessing. But when we go through it in the power of the Spirit, gladly and willingly, knowing that in everything God works for good to them that love him. With that hope and that faith, then that is going to produce blessing in regards to other people. And, uh, and then people realise, hey, it is viable to be brave for Jesus. Of ourselves, we're cowards, but it is possible to be brave for Jesus. We don't actually have to be such spineless softies. You see what I mean? We don't actually have to be that. It's not... You know, it doesn't have to be like that. God can do it in Paul, therefore God can do it in regards to us as well. Now in verse 15, he turns to something else now. Let's, let's just read from verse 15 to 18. <clears throat> he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defence of the gospel. But the former proclaim Christ out of partisanship, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And he says, what then? Or so what? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, what Paul touches on here is quite simply 
that you can serve the Lord from either right motives or wrong motives. He's talking here about other Christians who are in prison, who are preaching Christ, i.e. they're going through all, all the motions, they're spreading the gospel, they're fundamentally doing what Paul was doing. But he says that these particular people aren't doing it out of love and goodwill, they're doing it out of envy and rivalry. You see, we can do even the right thing for totally the wrong reasons. So, in our serving the Lord, in any one instance, now this can be virtually the whole of our lives, or bits here and there, we can be doing it either from goodwill and out of love, which is a sincere heart in the fruit of the Spirit, because Jesus really wants us to, or we can do the right thing and serve God from our own sinful desires. All right. And here are men preaching the gospel, serving the Lord out of a motive of envy and rivalry. And their desire was to further afflict Paul. Now, what exactly is Paul referring to here? What's going on? Well, he's going on about this one particular thing. One of the things that Paul suffered from, all right, was other people who reckoned that, that, that God had called them in the same way that, you know, he called Paul. There were always people around who were jealous of Paul. They thought they were better than Paul and whatever God calls Paul to do, I can do. Do you see what I mean? And they had this real little conflict going with Paul. And Paul spent his whole life having to fight against people that when he planted a church, all right, these people who were Christians but jealous of him, they didn't like him, they didn't <coughs> like him. They'd all the time be coming in trying to poison the churches against Paul. You see what I mean? Trying to poison him. Now what's happening here is that these people, knowing that Paul is in prison, is that suddenly their ministry goes up a step. They, they, they change gear. And they start getting all the places where Paul's got influence, knowing, well, Paul's in jail, he can't do anything about it. And what they want to do is almost to try and get in the churches the same influence that Paul had in Paul's absence, because they were jealous of him. Now, that's what's happening here. Paul is referring to people who were doing that following him around, and when he wasn't there, like Paul would be at a church, maybe for a few weeks, maybe a few years, Paul would go somewhere else, now he's in the slammer. And these people would appear, and they get in there trying to turn the church against Paul. Is he? To take his place in the churches. And that is what Paul is referring to, because they wanted to get at Paul. They wanted to pull him down, poison people against him. But what Paul says here, now, is he bothered about it? Is he kind of, how dare they do this? I shall sort them out. No. He says, well, in actual fact, at least they're preaching the gospel. Now, we know for a fact from the Bible that God once spoke through an ass. Is he? Now, a God who can speak through a donkey can do anything. He can use anything. Even if people are preaching the gospel from totally the wrong motives, even if their lives are totally out of order, if they're preaching the gospel, God will use it. God will use anything he can get. So if you've got people well out of order preaching the gospel, well, if other people are converted, brilliant, superb. 
Now, that doesn't mean that we ought to say, oh, well, it doesn't matter how you live then, carry on preaching the gospel even though your life is well out of order. But what Paul's saying, there's nothing he could do about those guys. He couldn't stop them. He was in jail. So he said, brilliant. At least the gospel is being preached. And you see, the truth is that whenever, whenever a believer is really being used by God, really sold out to the Lord, really being used, it is the sad case that there will always be other Christians around who feel threatened by it. There will always be existing churches, existing leaders who feel their position threatened. Uh, indeed, in Luke's Gospel, we're told that the chief priests handed Jesus over to Pilate out of envy. That was their motive. They wanted to get rid of Jesus because they were jealous of him. You see, because Jesus commanded a respect and he had an authority that they couldn't begin to move in and they felt threatened by him. But Paul's answer to this wasn't to kind of get all umpety about it. He just said, right, okay, God's using it. God's using it. Okay, they're having a campaign against me, but at least they're preaching the gospel. So he says, I don't care whether they're doing it because they love the Lord or whether they're doing it because they're getting at me. The point is the gospel's getting preached. And if the gospel gets preached, God's going to use it and people are going to be saved. So Paul wasn't all lumpety about it. He just, he wasn't thinking of himself at all. And when these things happen to us, you know, smear campaigns, whatever, whatever, it's no use getting the ump. It's no use going up in the air about it or getting all hurt. When things like that happen, we can use it for our own maturity. If your name, if your reputation is being ripped to bits by people, what a wonderful opportunity to learn humility. Isn't it? What a beautiful time to learn humility. You know, to abase ourselves and to say, well, I'm nothing anyway. <laughs> I'm sinful anyway. Find out. It hurts a bit, but that's just the way it is. Paul wasn't thinking of himself at all. And in the face of all that, he was just thinking about the Lord and how the Lord's work was best done. And look, in verse 19, he says, <coughs> Yes, I shall rejoice. He says, I shall rejoice. Paul had plenty to be depressed about, didn't he? In jail, name getting kicked around in the mud. He had loads to get depressed about. But what does he decide to do? He says, I shall rejoice anyway. Do you see, it's an act of the will. Paul says, I'm going to find that silver lining around the cloud. I'm not going to get all depressed about it. I'm going to make myself agree with God. And the word of God says that whatever happens to me is going to be further for my own good. Paul refused to get down in that. He did every now and then. But he refused this ghastly depression and defeatism that our sinful natures are always ready to get into. He refused it. And he said, I am just going, I'm going to make myself rejoice in the Lord. And I'm going to make myself look, not to myself in this, not my circumstances, I'm going to keep looking to the Lord. All right. And he says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. All right. Paul was expecting to be delivered in the situation he was in. Now then, this begs the question, 
Does this mean that Paul's saying, I know I'm going to be set free from jail? When he says, God's going to deliver me in this situation, was he referring to the fact that it was going to be God getting him out of jail? All right, well, go down into verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I shall not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. And the deliverance that Paul is talking about is nothing to do with getting out of his situation. Paul's not here saying, but really, I mean, I'm sure I'm going to claim my freedom from jail. That's not what he's talking about. He says, I know that God is going to give me victory in the circumstances that I'm in. Paul wasn't always thinking, oh, if only my circumstances changed, I'd be following the Lord. He says, I know that there's going to be victory in the circumstances. Can you see? He isn't saying, Lord, get me out of jail. He's saying, Lord, sanctify me now that I'm here. Do you see the difference? And indeed, Paul never really expected to be set free because he said he was quite open to the fact that he might die. And indeed, he never got out of jail and he did die eventually, a few years later. Now, for us, if we were in jail, we'd be reading all the, all the charismatic books, wouldn't we? You know, how to, how to claim your freedom from jail. You know, how to claim your Mercedes. Uh, you know, how to get out of this bad situation. The Bible doesn't always promise us that we'll get out of the bad situation. But the Bible promises us, promises us that that bad situation can do a work in us that is absolutely amazing. One way that it worked in me, or that God got this kind of thing through to me some years ago, is, is that, I mean, often the Christian life can be like being stuck in a long, dark tunnel, can't it? <laughs> you know, I mean, could people identify with that? You know, there are times in life it's like stuck in a long, dark tunnel. Now, my mentality was that what kept me going in that long, dark tunnel was the hope that eventually I'll see the light at the end of it. And then after that, I'll be able to head to it and get out of the long, dark tunnel. Now, for me, that's what deliverance was all about. Deliverance was that God's going to get me out of this long, dark tunnel. Because the light of the world is out there. And I'm going to get there. Right? And what God showed me is that when he puts you in these long, dark tunnels, because, I mean, don't, you know, don't be fooled. God put your long, dark, dark tunnel there, whatever it is. <laughs> you know, he did it. It's his fault. Right? That it's not a question of God getting us out of the long dark tunnel where Jesus, the light of the world, is waiting at the end of it. I saw that deliverance and maturity was Jesus, the light of the world, coming into that long dark tunnel. You see? It wasn't getting out of the situation. It was reaching victory in the situation. It wasn't when you're in an intolerable situation, saying, oh, Lord, get me out of it, and praying and claiming your way out of it. Maturity is when that intolerable situation eventually becomes quite tolerable, because God's grace is sufficient for you. It's not always the removal of the problem. Very often, God will remove the problem when your attitude in the problem is right. The problem is there to do a work in your attitude. Can you see? That may be the problems with that person who you can't stand, who are driving you up the wall and you just can't love them and you won't love them. Right? Well, often the problems with that person will cease 
precisely when you have come to love them and can put up with them. Then they get better, is it? But as long as we're demanding the removal of the problem, no, no. Because that would be counterproductive. We wouldn't grow into maturity in a situation like that. And so Paul here, when he talks about, but he says, look, I'm in prison, but I'm going to be delivered. He said, it's my eager expectation. Now we think, oh yeah, Paul's got faith that God's going to get him out of jail. That's not what he's talking about. He said, I might rot here until I die. He says, but my deliverance is that I'm going to be in victory in jail. God's going to do a work in me while I'm here in jail. Strikes us dead, doesn't it? This strikes me dead. But very often that's what the sword of the Spirit does, doesn't it? Now then, let's, let's, let's go down. Let's, let's just read verse 21 now. All right. He says, well, at the, at the end of verse 20, he's saying, uh, Christ will be honoured in my body. That's all he was concerned about, that Jesus is honoured in my body. That's all he wanted. I want Jesus to reveal himself through me. Whether by life or by death. All right. Now he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. <coughs> if it's to be life in the flesh, that means fruitful labour for me. Yet which I shall choose, I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more important on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample calls to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Now, Paul does something here that is quite frequent. If you read through the letters he writes, every now and then you'll hit a bit like this. And what Paul does is that he's writing away and he ends up having a debate with himself. So really, he's He's talking to himself now. He's trying to make up his mind about something. He's having a debate and he's putting it on paper. Now, the debate he's having with himself is this. Is it better for me to die or to live? Which would be best, for me to die now or to die later? What an odd debate. Who's keen to die here? I, I'm not, I'll be frank. Not because I'm worried about, you know, I mean, I know where I'm going, I have no fear of death. But here, Paul is debating, now, what's the best thing? Now, he, it's not here, you know, morbid suicide. Paul's not here suicidal, you see. But what he's going through is this. You see, he's not thinking of himself here, but the Lord. And that's why he's debating it away. He says, look, he says, if I live... All right, that's Jesus, because as long as my body is functioning, as long as I'm alive, as long as I'm moving, all right, then my body is available for Jesus to use. So he says, yeah, that's good, that's good. And he said, but, but if I died, that's even better, because then I'm with him. No barriers whatsoever, face to face, you see. He said, oh, that, that would be brilliant, you see. Uh, but then he thinks, well, yeah, I, but if I do that, then I can't keep serving you all. Here's he. And this is what he's getting a bit of a tiz was about. You know, he says, but, but if I do go to be with her, he said, that'd be fantastic. He says, but you all might lose out. The Lord might want me, you know, want to do more through me. Now, can you see in this how differently Paul thinks to the way we often think? You know, I mean, Paul was not hanging on to his life in this world for dear life's sake. He was quite happy to let it go. 
because he didn't have all these vested interests that we tend to have. You see what I mean? Paul held his life very, very lightly. I know that I hold mine far too firmly. And God's got to do work, you know, more work in me about that. But he eventually concludes, he says, no, no, no. He said, I, th I think the answer is it's best that I hang around. I think it's best that I live a bit longer. He says, because if I do, that will be better for you lot. He says, whereas dying would be better for me, carrying on living is going to be better for you. Because then God can keep using me. So it's almost as if, you know, Paul's thinking, well, shall I go now? Shall I pull? I mean, not that it was up to Paul. I mean, we die when the Lord says. But what I will say is that I'm very glad that Paul hung around a bit longer because it was during this imprisonment after he wrote that that he went on to write 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, Colossians, Ephesians and Philemon. A great chunk of the New Testament was written precisely because Paul came to the conclusion, no, I think I'd better hang around a bit longer. You see what I mean? But what an attitude. Can you imagine sitting in jail, facing death eventually? I mean, he knew he was going to get the chop eventually, all right, but didn't know when. Is it going to be next week? Is it going to be another five or six years? And sitting there debating, is it best if they give me the chop now or, or later? I was just saying, what an odd debate to have with yourself. But that is what Paul is here doing. You see, last week I said the insight in Paul, you know, about Paul. Paul's not writing this letter to correct anyone. He's not writing it in answer to a letter from a church that's saying, oh, Paul, help, there's this, this and this, what do we do? He's writing to a group of friends at a church that has sent him some money because he needed it. He's writing a thank you letter. So there's no great burden to correct this, that and the other. The insight that we get into Paul here is uh, absolutely amazing. And, uh, you know, so he thinks, yeah, no, it is best that I kind of hang around a bit longer. And uh, his general attitude is basically this, what does it matter? I'm dead anyway. <laughs> Died in Christ, haven't I? I've been baptised. I kind of went down into the grave. I'm not alive anymore. For me to live is Christ. That's what he said. It's no longer <laughs> I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I mean, that, that, that's where Paul was. This is the excellence that he wanted other people to aim towards. He's not, you know, it's not, you can't suddenly bang, get there tomorrow. This is something you grow into over years and years and years. But this is where Paul's saying, look, this is where I want you all to come to. God's done it in me. Nothing special about me. He can do it in you as well. This is what is to be aimed for. All right. And um, so let's just read now from verse... Verse 27, <clears throat> he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear omen to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. So what he says, he says right okay now make sure, he says make sure my friends that your manner of life is worthy of the gospel of Christ. He reminds them, he says you're all saved but he says don't forget to act saved. <laughs> it's quite possible to be saved saved eternally, born again, saved, but not to act saved. There are many Christians who don't act saved. 
You see what I mean? And Paul says, look, I want you all to be acting saved. And he says, the goal that you're heading for is unity. He says, I want you all to be utterly united in this one thing, and it's serving the Lord. That is how we live a life that is worthy of our calling in Jesus. Unity amongst those with whom we are in fellowship in our church. And you'll find again and again in the Bible that when division and all this stuff happens, you will always find at the heart of that, you'll find malcontents. You'll always find at the heart of division people with the ump. You will always find at the heart of division people who are concerned for their rights. They haven't been treated right. At the heart of a division, you will always find those who are more concerned with themselves than they are with Jesus and than they are with other people. Now, what Paul is saying is he says, look, no, pull that behind you. Pull that behind you. That's not what it's about. Unity is when you're saying, look, what these other people want is more important than what I want. Unity is when everyone is saying what Jesus wants is more important than what we want. When people are willing to lay down their rights, when people are willing to love back even if they're treated badly rather than get in there after their pound of flesh. I mean, what good is it? I mean, sort of say you do me wrong. All right. What good is it if I'm going to be there like a rocket? Oi, what do you think you're doing? How dare you say that about me? Isn't it just better to just love you? It's all right, I'll remember to pray for them a little bit more now. And then that's, that's how unity happens. You know, but when everyone is, you know, kind of, you know, so concerned for ourselves, that is when disunity really comes into a church. And, uh, you know, Paul is saying, now look, all this conflicting interest, he says, that's not for us. Let your interests be more concerned with what other people need, less concerned with what you need, and the unity of the Holy Spirit is going to be in the midst of you. And in verse 28, he says, so that you're not frightened in anything by your opponents. One thing that we've all experienced here is that disunity breeds insecurity, doesn't it? We've all noticed that. When there are people who are willing to be destructive, when there are people who it's more important to them to either get their own way or vindicate themselves against what they see so-called wrong against them, when that's more important to them than order and discipline and love in the church, then obviously everyone starts getting secure. That's when you start to find out, you know, hey, people are going around stabbing you in the back. Uh, and you start looking over your shoulder, don't you? And that breeds fear. We've experienced this here, haven't we, in the past? You know, that when people start getting out of order and they've got the knives out for certain other people and, you know, it's all, there's this kind of going on everywhere, that breeds insecurity, and insecurity breeds fear. Now, Paul says, if you've got this unity, where you don't want anything bad to happen to anyone in the fellowship, all you want to do is see everyone blessed. You're not fussed about yourself. If them being blessed means you become a bit of a doormat, so what? What's the problem? Uh, on Sunday, Robert just quoted that psalm, I'd rather be a doormat in the house of the Lord. And I said, no, a doormat 
And it is. It's a doormat. I told you before about that thing that Roger Price said well, once, you know, he was, you know, people were being a bit horrible to him. And, uh, you know, but he had to love them. He had to help them, all right? He was an elder of a church. He had no choice about that. And, uh, and he said, oh, Lord, Lord, what's happening? And he got this vision of a doormat. He said, all right, Lord, I take the point. <laughs> I've said it before, haven't I? A doormat. What happens on a doormat? You walk all over a doormat and it gets the dirt off your feet. Now, the point is, if people walking all over you and treating you like a doormat, if that's getting the dirt off their feet, isn't that good? Isn't that worth being a doormat for? See? And then what Roger said, he said, all right, Lord, I accept that. Yeah, I accept that. What next? And he had another vision. He saw a doormat with welcome written on it. See? You know, that's unity, that's serving each other, you see. And that when a fellowship is like that, there's going to be courage, there's going to be unity, there's going to be boldness. And insecurity isn't going to be able to really set in. And then our opponents or all the difficulties of day-to-day -day life, all the obstacles that we face, we can kind of, you know, get on with overcoming them. Rather, I mean, it's a terrible thing when you're watching your back in your own fellowship. <laughs> you see, and, and sadly that can happen. And that's why sometimes people have to be dealt with quite severely. But Paul says, look, don't, you know, he says, be one, have that unity. You're all after the same thing. You're all selflessly given to the Lord and to each other. And he says then, he says, goodness, the boldness that that is going to bring. And fear, hesitancy, all, all this self-consciousness. Half the problem with not being free in worship is self-conscious, isn't it? Back to our, our self-obsession, isn't it? Unity will actually help us get free of our, our obsession with ourselves. So if you've got to watch your back, if you think, oh, someone in the fellowship, they're, oh dear, a bit dangerous, then again, your mind is on yourself. The less our minds are on ourselves, the better. The more our mind is on Jesus and on other people, the better. It's only when we're constantly thinking about ourselves that we get into trouble. And so what Paul is saying, look, this unity is going to lead to boldness. You won't experience so much insecurity. You won't experience so much fear. And of course, part of the job of eldership is to make sure that the, the flock is secure. You know, that, that, that wolves in sheep's clothing don't get in to savage the flock. That's half of what eldership is actually about. And that is going to lead to peace, security, courage, and boldness. And we'll all find ourselves doing things. We thought, oh, crikey, no way would I have done that six months ago. Wow, isn't it marvellous what God's doing? Because your mind is off yourself, on the Lord, and that is when we really grow. And then just down into verse 29 and verse 30, listen to this. He says, <coughs> For it has been granted to you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but you also should suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict which you saw and now hear to be mine. Now what Paul is saying, I'm in jail and you're not, okay, no problem. But what he's saying is that I'm in jail only because I'm sold out to Jesus. And the reason I'm in jail is because I am living in a world that is run by the devil. And the devil wants to stop us. The devil wants to make life unpleasant. Now, the beautiful thing is that Satan can't do a thing against us except he clears it with God first. But nevertheless, if you're really sold out to Jesus, then you are a marked man. You are a marked person. All right. 
And Paul reminds them, he says, but look, this is what you've been called to. Jesus suffered. And believe me, where the master has gone, the disciples must eventually follow. And Paul's saying, don't be surprised that I'm suffering, and don't be surprised that you're suffering. We are living in a world that is run by the devil. He hates us. He hates us. He's trying to stop us. He wants to destroy us. He can't destroy us. God won't let him. But he's certainly going to try. And here, Paul's reminding them, if you're going to follow Jesus, then you're also going to pay for it. If you follow Jesus to the full, the world will hate you. The world will hate you. If you're really sold out to Jesus, wherever you go, people are going to be convicted of their sin by your mere presence. I'm not talking about everywhere you go saying, oh, that's naughty, you shouldn't do that, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. I'm not talking about, you know, all the time you're with non-Christians, you're saying you're sinful and you need Jesus. You don't have to open your mouth to convict people. But if you're really following Jesus, they will be convicted. Now, some of them will respond and respect you. Others will hate you for it. They will hate you for it. And they'll make you pay the price. But what were we expecting? Look what happened to Jesus. If it happened to him, then it's going to happen to us as well. We are in a conflict. Paul writes to the Philippians, he says, you are in the same conflict that I'm in. But this is written to us as well. We are in the same conflict that Paul was in. The forces, the powers that be that put Paul the, the Apostle in jail are still working against us today. The world is being controlled by Satan and by his evil spirits. So don't expect, if you're really following Jesus, to get away without any trouble. You're not going to. <clears throat> and it raises this point. All right. If you're finding it really hard to be a Christian, that sounds about right. If you're finding it easy being a Christian, what on earth is wrong with you? There's something wrong with your discipleship if it's easy. One of the things that Jesus said concerning the Pharisees is he said, woe unto you when all men love you. I mean, don't think you can be a Christian and be popular. If we want to be, you know, Mr. Nice Guy or Mr. Popular. Now, having said that, I'm not talking about we do things deliberately designed to make ourselves unpopular. I mean, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be popular. We all do. But the point is, in order to be really popular in this world, you have got to compromise your standards as a Christian. Is he? But Jesus said, if you're following me, you're going to be persecuted. So woe unto you when all men speak well of you. There's something wrong if all men speak well of you. There's something wrong if that world out there gets on really well with you. Now, the point is, certainly with neighbours and friends who aren't Christians, I mean, yeah, you can have friendship, and that is valuable. That's part of how people get converted. But my goodness, you can't have be in contact with people who don't know the Lord and eventually come up against their hatred because they hate Jesus. I hated Jesus once. Everyone here once hated Jesus. Now we love him. But those people out there hate him. 
And the only reason that they're not at any one moment actually showing their hatred for him is because they're not at that moment experiencing his closeness. But believe me, as soon as Jesus comes close to them, bang, that hatred comes out. They're threatened by it. Now, the whole idea of Christianity is that Jesus is coming close to these people through you and me. Now then, many of them are going to become Christians. Many of, us, you know, many of them are going to see what God has done and they're going to respond. But I tell you as well, many of them are going to hate us for it, including family. One of the things Jesus said, he says, if you love father or mother more than me, you are not worthy of me. Why did he say that? Why did he say, I haven't come to bring peace, I've come to bring a sword? come to divide a mother from his daughter-in-law and daughters from their mothers-in-law and blah, blah, blah. Why did Jesus say that? Because he knew that many people who got converted, all right, as they came to love him, that would spark off the people in their family who hate him and there would be conflicts. Now that is awful, it's terrible. We're not actually meant to enjoy it. It is awful. We can't compromise it. And Jesus comes first, before family, before anything at all. So why did Jesus say those things? Because he was preparing his disciples, look, I'm not kidding you when I talk about this persecution. He says, I'm not just kind of painting it very black so that when it's not as bad as it seems, you'll be nicely surprised. He says, I'm telling you the way it is. If the world hates me, it will hate you. Jesus was rejected by his family. Why should we expect we're not going to be rejected by our family, by our friends? We are, if we're going to be faithful to Jesus. But as I say, when the world gets on with us, I mean, when we're hand in hand with the world, when we're, you know, cheek and jowl with the world, there's something very wrong. There's something very wrong. The world actually hates us. So if it's not hating us, it's because we're still loving the world. Can you see? It's because we're not being fully faithful to Jesus. And Paul, he says to these people, look, that conflict is there. It's never far away. But when it comes, be encouraged. Because when it does come, when you are going through it, this is part of your discipleship. This is part of your growth. You've been called not just to believe on Jesus, not just to be saved, not just to be born again, not just to be part of his family. You've actually been saved in order to serve him. And if you're going to serve him, you're going to pay the price. That rejection by other people is going to come at some point or the other. And it is part of the process. I used to go through sometimes, you know, if, if I ever came up against trouble like that, it used to kind of give me a complex, oh goodness, what am I doing wrong? And it's like there are always, I remember, <coughs> I remember a Christian woman saying to me once in all seriousness, she said, Beresford, you can always tell when something has been done in love and in the power of the Spirit because no one will be upset. May I tell you, it's exactly the opposite. It's exactly the opposite. If you do things in love and the power of the Spirit, I guarantee that people are going to get upset. 
when John Wesley, I love this, I love this, when John Wesley was training up young preachers, all right, to send out, because there was a real move of the Holy Spirit, you know, during his time in this country, and loads of people were getting converted, I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of people were being converted, I mean, there was this massive harvest out there, and John Wesley gathered young men who, who you know, to, who said, look, God's called me to go and preach, tell me what to do, teach me, teach me, disciple me. Now, he... He would send them out. He'd say, right, okay, if you think God has called you, out you go. You go out there, you preach, you tell people about Jesus. You go for it, all right? Now, when they came back, John Wesley had a way that he tested whether or not they'd been called by God. And it was always after they'd been out doing it, right? So they'd come back, and he'd say to them, did anyone get converted? Did anyone get mad? And if the answer to either of those questions was no, he said, God hasn't called you. <laughs> you see? If no one's getting mad, and if no one's getting converted, then that's not the power of the Spirit. Because the power of the Spirit does not leave any way for indifferent kind of people sitting on the fence. I mean, we've always said in this church, don't we, we work so hard, not at trying to get people converted, we work hard at putting them off. And that's the way Jesus did it. Jesus would get this massive crowd of people who'd be gathering around him, all right? And he'd stand up and he'd preach the gospel to them, all right? And afterwards he had 12 people left. Now that's, not, that's, that's not the way we do it today, is it? We do anything to get the crowds in, not Jesus. I mean, Jesus will say, whoa, don't follow me too quickly. Just hold on there, buddy. I know you want to get born again. Just listen to me, he'd say. Look. Just think about it, you might be homeless. Everyone might hate you, your family might kick you out. I just, just, just think about this. Whereas today, if someone starts making noises about getting, a convert, you know, getting converted, I mean, whoosh, they're in, you know, on a bit of elastic, aren't they? We grab them in too quickly. Jesus put people off. By which I mean we don't want easy converts. Jesus wanted people not to just be converts, he wanted disciples. And so he prepared people for the difficulties of following him. The absolute no compromise of following him. Because that is what following him is. It is making no compromise with the world. No concessions to the world. No concessions to our sinful natures. It's going the whole hog with Jesus. Now, when you're doing that, you are in Satan's sights. You are a targeted man or woman. And Satan will spare no ammunition at his command to stop you. If your Christian life is a doddle, always been a doddle, no big deal, okay, then I have to tell you that you are not in Satan's sights. Because Satan has the power to blast you. So if you ain't get blasted, it's for one reason. He's not firing anything at you. And if Satan isn't firing anything at you, it's because you're not bothering him. There's the story in the Acts of the Apostles, isn't it, about the sons of Sceva. There's a high priest called Sceva. And he has seven sons. And they, they, they'd seen Paul cast evil spirits out of people. right? And they thought, oh, well, yeah, yeah, that was easy, didn't it? Well, we'll have a bash at that. So they found, found some bloke who was demonized, okay? And they started, you know, to cast these demons out of him. And what they did it, they came against these demons and they were saying to the demons, look, we command you to leave in the name of Paul, whom Jesus, whom Paul preaches. 
That's what they were doing. They said, if we do it like this bloke, Paul, they weren't Christians, but if we do it like this bloke, Paul, he knows how to do it, they'll come out. So they said, you know, we command you to come out in, in, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. Now those demons in that man, all right, they turned on these guys. In fact, they beat them up, and these seven guys ran away naked. But before they got beaten up, all right, by this demoniac, the demon said, he said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, who are you? See? Now, I wonder, I wonder if the demons have got your name in their notebook. I hope they have. I hope they have. I hope you're on Satan's files as a threat. But if you are, you're going to know all about it. But if you're not, you won't know all about it. And life will be smooth. Just go to show that something's wrong. But Paul wrote to the Philippians and he said, right, you're going through a bad time. He says, that is a marvellous. He says, that is actually part of your Christian life. And when Jesus comes into the life, look at all the blessings you get. You get salvation. Jesus can heal you. He'll baptise you in the Spirit, fill you with supernatural power. He'll give you peace. He'll give you joy. He'll give you warfare. He'll give you suffering. He'll give you a real hard time. Oh, those last three, that's not the gospel we've all heard, is it? We just promise people the nice bits. The Bible promises us the whole lot. The, what we will call the good bits and what we will call the bad bits. They're all ours if we're following Jesus. And Paul just here reminds them, look lads, you're going to suffer. But he says, what a privilege to suffer for Jesus. Next time, chapter 2.